You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Church, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 26. Happy birthday. She's four, four today. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 23, verse 26. We're going to read through verse 32 in just a moment. We began this mini-series in verse 1 where the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feast of the Lord. And that word for feast is actually the Hebrew word maweday. It means appointed time. But God didn't first used that word in the book of Leviticus. He actually used that word before man and woman were even created. If you look back in Genesis 1 verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And that word for seasons is the same word in Leviticus 23, maweday, meaning appointed God literally made time so that He could appoint time for us to prioritize Him on our calendars. I saw a quote uh, this week that says, When we don't prioritize coming to church, we shoot ourselves in the foot, we shoot our kids in the leg, and we shoot our grandkids through the heart. And that's true, generationally, generally. Is Christ on your calendar? Do you make your schedule prioritize your own agenda or His? Which is it? There are seven prescribed feasts we've been looking at in Leviticus 23 that highlight the use of time in our lives by God's people. We looked at the Sabbath day, that's God's weekly pause, the anchor of the other feasts. We looked at the Passover and unleavened bread, which was God's protection from the death angel that passed over and hell that is eternal. Uh, the feast of first fruits was just us giving a small portion to God, which is not in payment for, but in gratitude and obedience of, uh, because his first portion of Jesus himself was more than we'll ever be able to give back. And then we looked at Pentecost. That's God's proof of the value. That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then uh, last week we looked at the Feast of Trumpets, which was like a piercing call from God for us to prepare for His return. Today we're looking at the Day of Atonement. This day is the most holy day of the Hebrew calendar. And it was the most holy day in the Christian calendar in terms of what it represents, right? It's the thing that allowed God's presence to even be possible in our lives. President uh, Wilson got a call from uh, a civil servant uh, who said in the middle of the night, said, listen, uh, one of your appointees has died. True story. And uh, the caller said, while I'm sad that your appointee has passed away, um, I would like to put my name forward to replace him. And Wilson just paused for a minute and said, well, I don't mind as long as it's okay with the undertaker. <laughs> Takes a minute, but you'll get it in just a second. He wasn't replacing his cabinet head. He, he was trying to replace, it was a joke. <laughs> Obviously, y'all didn't have your cup of coffee this morning. Here's the point of the joke is you can't be me. There are no substitutes when it comes to your time. I can't replace 
your time. I can't be you. You can't be me, which is why each person's calendar matters. So, without further ado, let's stand in honor of God's word and read this passage together. Leviticus 23, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now, on the tenth day of the seventh month, is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall not do any work on that very day, for it's a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Whoever does not work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. My God bless the reading of his word. I want to ask Gail Ellis to come and ask God's blessings. We sang to her mom last week. We're going to get to hear her pray this week. Thank you. Will you bow with me? Dear God, it is great to be in your house today. We have assembled here together because we know that you are God who speaks, and we come here to hear a word from you. I pray that your hand would be on Went as he delivers the message that you've laid on his heart and that he has read and pondered and prayed over this week. I pray that you would just incline our ears to hear what you have to say. And I pray that our hearts would receive it. I pray that we would go forth from this place. And there would be an evidence in our lives that we have spent time with the Lord. Yeah. Thank you. And I ask you to just, um, just change our hearts, dear God. I pray that you would make us a people um, that would be different and that the lost would see that in our lives. I ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Thank you, Gail. All right. So these seven verses in Leviticus 23 are basically a summary of the Day of Atonement. But they're, they're talked about fully in Leviticus 10, and I mean 16, and then again over in uh, Numbers 29, I believe. But it's, it's, the day is known as Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means atonement. So it's the day of atonement. And atonement means satisfaction or reparation for a wrong or an injury. It's also the doctrine concerning the reconciliation of God and mankind that God accomplished uh, through the life, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ for mankind. It's the completion of God's forever holy agreement. What was that holy agreement? Well, that holy agreement happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves with fig leaves, but that wasn't enough, so he had to kill animals. There had to be bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. We think of blood as dirty, nasty. I wouldn't dare want to have you know, someone else's blood touch you, right? But it's holy. Everything in the Old Testament was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the Day of Atonement 
what we're studying today is the literal beginning of the time where priests would go in and carry a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. There were different layers of the temple and I don't have time to teach all those. That's a whole other series in itself. But they would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for or to cover the sins of God's people for the previous year. And it meant the priest had to be purified and they would, there were all these rituals they had to wash over and over again. They say that they had to wash as many as seven times uh, before they touch things and very specific guidelines for offering the sacrifice. And there were uh, always two different goats represented on that day. One would be sacrificed, but the other would be set free. That's what they call the scapegoat. Aaron would put his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess over it all the sin and rebellion of God's people. Then a, a specially appointed man would carry that goat after they sent him off to, be, to release that goat into the wilderness. That represents us, right? That goat carried on its back in a figurative sense all of the sins of the people. So they would be temporarily forgiven, temporary, but they had to keep coming back. Every year, every year, every year, every year. Until, until Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice once for all, putting an end to all those old ceremonies of cleansing. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Right, that's why we call Jesus the Lamb of God. Leviticus 23, 26 to 32 summarizes the whole chapter of Leviticus 16. But Leviticus 16, when it starts out, alludes to an event that took place in Leviticus 10. We're just we're backpedaling, right? And I don't want us to get lost in all these rituals. That's not my point today, though they do have spiritual meaning. I want us to get caught up in the holiness and the love of God because God's intent in all of this day of atonement process, these Old Testament rituals, was to make his presence with us possible. How could he maintain his holiness while we are sinners and still commune with us? How can that happen? So even though this ritual has ceased from like being effective for forgiveness, I think in learning about the Day of Atonement, one of these seven appointed feasts, we can have, and that's what my intent today is to see biblical ways to make God's presence in our lives possible. If you want God's presence in your lives, this is, you need to listen to what God's word says. And the first step in assuring God's presence is to put the fear of God in our families. We talk about, uh, you know, he, when he had that wreck, it put the fear of God in him. We talk about tragedies and events in people's lives that put the fear of God in them, right? Y'all track him? And that's not always, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it can be an occasion God uses for a wake-up call in someone's life spiritually. Well, it begins with the realities, the facts, the spirit-filled power of God's Word. It's one thing to have the fear of God come into you from an accident, but if those are spontaneous events. We can't control, we don't go out usually seeking an accident, seeking God to discipline us for our sin. So how can we do this intentionally? 
Well, first, we can make God's Word the axis our lives revolves around, revolve around. Before you can understand the holiness of God, you've got to know, trust, and obey the Word of God. There's a great example of this in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was held captive by a Persian king. I think it was Artaxerxes II. I can't remember. But that king, because he respected Nehemiah so much, allowed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and reform the city and God's people along with Ezra the priest. But the real foundation of that reformation is seen in Nehemiah 8 verse 2. I want to read this to you. Ezra the priest brought the law, that's the Bible, that's the Bible they had back then, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, same holy month as the day of atonement. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. All And the ears of all the people were attentive to the law. They were attentive to the Bible. They weren't attentive to some pop culture icon, some, some, um, some TV evangelist, some cult of personality pastor. It says they were attentive, not to the awesomeness of Ezra, but they were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform <laughs> what they, that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood all these other elders. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, like physically. And as he opened it, all the people stood. There you go. There's where we get that custom. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, also the Levites helped the people to understand the law. Verse 9, and Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for, get, listen, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Church, to instill the fear of the Lord in your own life and in your families, we must make God's word the center and tremble at it. Uh, Jimmy, uh, Jim Camperdam read a verse this morning, that Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right? Wisdom begins with the fear of God. If you don't have it, if your kids don't have it, then you haven't even started down the path of sanctification. And the only way we, we have to encounter the holiness of God, which teaches us the fear of God, is through the holy word of God. God's not holy if his word's not holy. If you want to encourage the fear of God in your families, teach his word. Bring them to small group Bible studies at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Bring them Wednesday nights at 6.30. Let them hear the Word of God and you can hear it too and be built up. Weep when you hear the holiness of God exposed through His Word. Make God's Word the axis your life revolves around. Second, to put the fear of God in our families, we need to treat God's presence with reverence. I don't mean some formal, just some formal thing. I don't mean just dressing up. Understanding the holiness of God and teaching it to our kids is vital. And parents, you can't teach holiness if you have no discipline in your home. 
If you give your kids a cookie every time they willfully, intentionally disobey the basic commands of your family, you are teaching your kid God's not holy because no rules apply to me. We're living in a generation of that, right? Generations of people who said, you know, forget it. Let mom deal with it. Let somebody else deal with it. And you don't get up and you don't do the necessary discipline to your children that you need. And listen, even as your kids get older, you may not use a spoon on them, but you still have a mouth and you still have a heart and you can still speak into their lives. Not because you, not because you're worth, not because you deserve to do that. You better respect me, boy. I never say that to my kids. They shouldn't respect me. I've broken more rules than they have. But they should respect God's word. And God's word says, children, obey your parents. I don't deserve for you to obey me, but God deserves for you to obey me. Now, of course, all discipline should be done with loving intent and controlled delivery. But I'm going to tell you something. Showing anger sometimes is good. They need to see your anger. It worries me when people are like, well, you can't be angry. You'll be a psycho, you know. Why, nothing makes you mad? You don't want to be expressive? You want to be a hypocrite and hide that? <laughs> well, there's a place for everything. If you're never angry and disappointed over their sin, how will they understand God's holiness? And let me just say, I am genuinely scared to preach this message. Multiple times this week, I have wept as I've read God's word. I've gotten down several times behind my desk this week on my face before God because he's holy his holiness matters in his church you're not going to sidestep his holiness friend you're going to come face to face with it sooner or later Exodus 33 18 Moses said please show me your glory God said buddy you can't see my glory not all of it but I'll tell you what <laughs> I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll show you my goodness from the back I'll put my hand over your face and I'm going to walk by you. I'll let you, little, I'll let you see a little of me. The Bible says, verse 20, Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And that doesn't mean that God hasn't encountered his people physically, right? Jesus was here, but it was cloaked. It was veiled because if we saw him fully, we'd be dead. John spoke of God's appearance in Revelation 1.17. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Church, if you don't hear anything else I say today in this message, let it be this. We must treat God's word and his presence with reverent fear because the only thing that makes his presence possible is atonement, bloodshed, done, by the way, his way. And to deviate from that is spiritual and physical insanity. You think we're Jesus freaks? You think we're, we're crazy? You're crazy. We've come to face, face to face with the holiness of God and we're scared of it. We're fearful of our holy God. Leviticus 16. Remember, it gives the detailed instructions of the Day of Atonement, which I'm not going to go through all those today. But it alludes to events from chapter 10. Those events in chapter 10 are the very tragedies that set about all this clarity concerning the Day of Atonement. 
So let me just go back. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? Coming through the, the Bible here. At the end of Exodus, the last five chapters are about the construction of the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is just a, a tent version of the temple that would be later in Jerusalem, right? Or the, you know, the temple that you, you've heard of, the fixed structure. Tabernacle was the mobile structure. Then Leviticus kicks off the first seven chapters with all these rules that were very specific about how to conduct those sacrifices inside the tabernacle. Then we come to chapter 8. We're moving up through Leviticus. Chapter 8 is all about installing the priest, specifically Aaron and his, younger, his older sons, right? And then Leviticus 9 describes the very first service that took place in that tabernacle. Y'all with me? It was such a big deal that, listen to this, Leviticus 9, 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. We're talking Elijah moment here. Fire came out because remember, over the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of the Lord and it burnt the offering, consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar and when all the people saw it, because they weren't in the tabernacle, but they could see the fire. And they shouted and fell on their faces. A holy moment, right? <laughs> Chills multiplying. Not over a girl or the singing of the national anthem, but over the holiness of God that transcends all country. But that glory quickly turned to tragedy in the very next verse. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and I won't get into all the details of what those things mean. He put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now commentators say they could have gone and gotten that fire from like a, a temple or something, a wicked temple, a pagan temple. You know, they didn't have like matches, so they may have kept the fire going from someplace else. Maybe they went next door and grabbed it from wherever. I, we don't know all the reasons. They may have had the wrong clothes on. They may have tried to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay, we don't know. But they offered all, we know that they didn't follow God's command, which he had not commanded them to do. They, they did what he hadn't commanded. Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord. Sound familiar? And it consumed something, all right, but it wasn't the fat on the altar. It consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And I imagine he was just like any other dad who was tempted to shake his fist at God when something tragic happens to their kids, regardless of the cause of it. But when Moses explained why, explained God's word, Aaron kept his mouth shut. I'll tell you why. I don't know all the reasons, the details that were going on that, that Aaron knew that we won't ever know of what was going on in the heart of his kids. But I know he knew this. God is holy and his rules matter and his commands and his ways. So we continue verse six, Leviticus 10. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes. These were signs of like mourning and weeping and sadness. Do not do these things lest 
you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, be well the burning that the Lord has kindled. Don't mourn over your brothers. Mourn and weep for your sin in front of a holy God. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die. And they did according to the word of Moses. You bet they did. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, which may allude to a possible re another reason that they could have, God could have consumed them. Maybe they were drunk while they were offering up the sacrifices. We don't know. When you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. And by the way, lest we think that Aaron had zero emotions in all this, like some calculated robot who didn't care about the loss of his children, and lest we think God is some cosmic killjoy, Leviticus 10, 16 says, Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. You bet he did, right? Next offering up, we're going to get this one right, okay? We don't want anybody else to die. So he's like, Aaron, you, did you do this right? Did you, is, is Aaron doing this right? I got I to gotta oversee this thing. And behold, it was burned up, which I guess it wasn't supposed to be. And he was angry with the surviving sons of Aaron. Same day, y'all, same day. And Aaron, that's good, you remember. That was, that was good. I wish some of y'all could remember my sermon. I wish I could remember my sermon. All right. Listen to this. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. What does all that mean? Okay, you got, you got guys, you got two older sons offering sacrifice in the wrong way, they die. You got two younger sons offering sacrifice in the wrong way, and they don't die. What's up with that? That seems unfair. Why did the older brothers die and why did the younger ones live if they both broke the law? Well, the ESV says it's, a, it's dramatic because it follows so closely on the fence of Nadab and Abihu, this, this second sons who did it wrong. Moses voices his anger. Aaron, however, intervenes on behalf of his two sons. He argues that the events of the day have been so exceptional <laughs> yeah, as to show that it's too dangerous to perform the ritual. Aaron's defense, get this, displays his fear of the holiness of God, which Moses is glad to see in his brother. That's the difference. I believe it's the same difference between, between uh, Cain and Abel. Wasn't just the, the meat, the meat offered versus vegetables. Wasn't just that blood had to be shed in the, in the sacrifices of old. It was the heart. The Bible says the Lord tests and weighs the intentions of the heart. If you want God's presence in your life and in the lives of your children for generations to come, put the fear of God in them by making God's word the axis your life revolves around and by treating God's presence with reverence. That's what kicked off this atonement. Well, the other step to making God's presence possible is to go afflict yourselves. <laughs> That's right. God's word says go afflict yourselves. Three times, as a matter of fact. Leviticus 23, 27, you shall afflict yourselves. Verse 29, whoever is not afflicted on that day will be cut off from his people. Verse 32, you shall afflict yourselves. So what does afflict mean? 
Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean, right? It's the same phrase found in Leviticus 16.29. And historians say that, that Jews traditionally interpret that expression, you shall afflict yourselves, in a legalistic manner, defining it as a refraining from a variety of things from intimacy to personal hygiene, which is one reason Jesus ended the ritual laws because the Jews ruined their significance by turning them into ritual observances instead of spiritual experiences. Jesus abolished the rituals and ceremonies, as meaningful as they were in their original purpose, in order to restore emphasis on spiritual realities which are completely independent of physical rituals. Now, this is interesting. Whenever different versions of the Bible disagree on something, then it's, it's a hard thing to translate usually. And, and the ESV says, translates this, afflict yourselves. The NIV says, deny yourselves. The New American Standard uh, version, which is little, it's more literal and wooden, it says, you shall humble yourselves. And the KJV says, afflict your souls. I, t I like the KJV version there, afflict your souls, because I think it's an issue of the heart. But they're all correct, right? But what we know the verse doesn't say is afflict your bodies, right? As if atonement is reached by self-abuse. And there's a lot of cults and religions that, that think they can please God that way. Don't misunderstand affliction. It's not self-harm. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Which leads to what affliction really means. Scholars note the correct interpretation of the requirement of, to afflict yourselves is to understand it in a spiritual sense to mean inner sorrowful repentance for sin. By being genuinely sorry for their sins, God's people could be covered from their sins and the dangers those sins brought to them. These rules of atonement, they weren't to be misunderstood as some mechanical legalistic gesture. And Isaiah 58 makes that clear. Isaiah 58 verse 2 says, They ask of me righteous judgments. Oh, judge us righteously, Lord. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, they say, right? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Hey, God, we're, we're on our faces here. I mean, at least two or three Sundays a year, preacher makes us get on our knees and pray. And I got bad knees. I mean, that's tough. Come on. I mean, we're doing what you want us to do. I'm, I'm trying to be humble here. God says, behold, in the day of your fast, this is verse 3, Isaiah 58, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? A day? A day. It's to bow down his head like a reed? Is that it? And to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? To break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Don't let them know we're home, babe. <laughs> then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourselves out for the hungry and satisfy, get this phrase, the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Not just the western part of the U.S. that's scorched. Spiritually. And make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. We don't need to hoover dam to fill up. We need our hearts to fill up. Affliction is not just self-denial. It's more than being afflicted, like being afflicted. It's seeing the afflicted. Is that not what God has done through his son Jesus in making atonement for our sins? We are afflicted with sin and he has poured out all he has for us. We need to spend less time feeling afflicted by the sins of others and more time helping sin-afflicted people. You're not alone in your sin affliction. Afflicting themselves for the day of atonement was more than the absence of sin. It was the presence of godly service to God. Maybe not on that day, but in that spirit. Church, let me just say this. Our hands are stained with the blood of Jesus. Hold up your hands. Look at your hands. Those hands, whether you know it or not, are stained with the blood of Jesus. And we bow in humility, afflicted, broken, looking on the tragedy of our sin and the consequences of it all being laid upon Jesus Christ in the past, not to mention being laid on our kids, our family, our own souls in the present. We're afflicted by our own sins. Our families are afflicted. But listen, it can all be cleansed. Amen? It has all been cleansed. Isaiah 1, verse 18. This is the best debate in the entire scripture, isn't it? Come now, let us reason together. Okay, I got a little debate for you. You want to have a little conference? Here's a debate for you. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall become like wool. If, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Church, I don't want you to miss. There's a deliberate choice in that passage. <laughs> if you are willing to receive atonement and welcome the presence of God in your life. But if you're not broken over sin, then you're not ready to trust in Christ's atonement. If we're not afflicted, humbled in our soul, then we're not ready. But if we see the blood of Christ on our hands and we bow our hearts before our great God, then He is waiting and willing and wanting to place his hands on you, his priestly hands on your head to release you from all your sin and pain. Eternal forgiveness and freedom. Amen. 
I want to read a passage as we are about to participate in the Lord's Supper. It's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, which really is, has is perfect uh, timing for this. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. There's a, it's, it's, this, is a, this is a sermon we're about to participate in. You're proclaiming in this event we're about to have of the Lord's Supper. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Would you stand? In a moment I'm going to pray and then you're going to be uh, free to go to one of the four or five Lord's Supper tables throughout the sanctuary. If you go to one of them and it's, it, it's run out, you can just go find another one. There's no rush here. You make your way back to the seats. There's two cups stacked on top of each other. The bottom is the bread. The top cup is the wine. You want to take both of those and go back to your seats. If you're a born-again Christian, if you're afflicted in soul, then you're ready to take this cup. And remember what God has done for you. After that, we're going to return to our seats and stand for our time of response. And if you are someone who wants to call on the name of the Lord and make that profession of faith public, then this is your time to come forward and do that. You may have been saved for years and want to come forward and be baptized. Or you may want to just join this church so you can be part of serving through our ministries here. Whatever that decision is, I pray you'll do it after that Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you would bless these elements. They figuratively represent a reality that you have been broken. Your bones weren't broken, but your body was beaten. Your blood was shed as the perfect and final once for all sacrifice for our sins. But we don't deserve to take it if we don't understand that we don't deserve to take it. <laughs> So God, help us to see our sin, to see our wickedness, to feel it, and to be broken for it, but also to embrace with joy the freedom and forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. We don't just take this in mourning, we take it reverently, knowing that you're holy and we are not. And we ask that you would bless this time now, and make it be worshipful, and make it glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.